Well, this morning I want us to begin just a brief summer series that the elders and I have talked about its importance for some time, and this seems like the, the proper time to sort of launch into it. Let me begin by reminding you of one of the most interesting places in the ancient world. The Library of Alexandria is the most famous library from antiquity. About 295 B.C., King Ptolemy I Soter of Egypt charged Demetrius, a former politician from Athens who had fled to Egypt, to found the Library of Alexandria. A Greek document from the 2nd century B.C. reads like this, Demetrius had at his disposal a large budget in order to collect, if possible, all the books in the world. And to the best of his ability, he carried out the king's objective, end quote. Estimates vary as far as the total number of volumes that were accumulated in the Library of Alexandria, but everyone agrees that almost all of the collective writing of the ancient world was assembled there. The estimates range between more than 200,000 books to even 700,000 books. Somewhere between that number were collected. Tragically, with its accidental destruction by Julius Caesar in 48 B.C., literally thousands of years of knowledge and practice were lost. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have walked into the library of Alexandria with literally almost every book that had been written up to that time assembled? As I thought about the, that library, I was reminded that also tragically over the last 150 years or so, the same thing has happened in the Christian church. The Christian church at large has lost its rich legacy of knowledge and practice. What is a legacy? Well, Webster defines a legacy in this sense as something handed down from the past. And that legacy, what has been handed down from the past to the church, has sadly been lost today. In some cases, it's the result of carelessness and neglect. In other cases, some have intentionally abandoned their biblical legacy for some new philosophy, some new idea, some new approach, some cultural idea. Many of you have come from churches where some or much of the Christian church's legacy has been lost. And you've come to CBC and you found things that seem new or certainly different than other churches that you've attended. The truth is there is nothing new here. We're simply doing what much of the church has always done. But the elders know at the same time that that transition from where some of you have come from to what happens here can be a difficult one, a hard one. So for the next few weeks, till we get back into 1 John with September, I, I want to address some basic elements of the church's legacy. Not our church, although that's true, but rather the church at large, the Christian church down through the centuries some basic elements of the church's legacy that have been lost to many churches today. And I have a couple of goals. One of those is I want to help all of us have a more profound appreciation for those beliefs and practices. 
More importantly, I want us all to understand that these things are rooted in the Scripture so that we treasure them, so that we defend them, and so that we benefit from them as our Lord intended. Today, I want us to focus on the recovery of the legacy of expository preaching. Now, for a few of you who were recently in the Faithful Stewards Conference, I covered these issues there, but for most of you, these will be new ideas, or at least they will be um, ideas that you don't think about all the time. Let me set some backdrop for you as to what's going on in the culture at large. Back in 2009, Ed Stetzer of Lifeway interviewed Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley and a pastor whose megachurch is well known for its seeker-sensitive style. Stanley at the time had just written a book on preaching. That interview is, of course, now more than 10 years old, but his controversial comments won't die. His comments about preaching continue to make the rounds on social media. Stetzer asked this question, what do you think about preaching verse-by-verse messages through books of the Bible? Stanley's response was shocking. He said, quote, guys that preach verse-by-verse through books of the Bible, that's just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. Now, there's a man who's clearly never done it. Then he added this theological assertion, and here's the heart of what I want you to get. This is the idea that's out there. He simply gave voice to it, quote, and he he was talking about sequential exposition, and he said, quote, it isn't how you grow people. Is he right? Is verse-by-verse exposition of books of the Scripture a man-made method that we can use or ignore at our own discretion? Is it a dated useless approach? Sadly, most of the professing church today in America thinks so. This week, I did what I've done before, and and I just took a, a short visit around to the websites of the largest churches here in our immediate area. So far this year, not one of them has done anything like expository preaching. Right now, in fact, the largest seeker-sensitive church in our area is in a series called, quote, At the Movies, end quote, where the pastor plays a movie clip and then goes on to try to draw out of that, that contemporary movie something of God's truth. Another large church in our area is trying to find God's truth buried within secular songs. Now, I need to acknowledge that there are good churches scattered throughout the metroplex. We don't have the Elijah syndrome, you know, we only are left and they seek our life to take it away. No, God says there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We, we freely admit that and we're grateful for that. At the same time, they are increasingly hard to find. And it is fair to say that most churches have abandoned any serious attempt to study the Bible. But the legacy of the Christian church is that expository preaching of the Scripture is, in fact, the biblical pattern. Now, obviously, when it comes to expository preaching, you, you accept it or you wouldn't be here, and maybe you're even committed to it. But my question to you this morning is, do you know why? Could you defend 
the practice of the exposition, the verse-by-verse study of God's Word to someone who challenged you. Well, we need to understand what the Bible says. That's the most important thing. And we need to know why we do what we do. We must understand the arguments for sequential expository preaching. So let's see if we can do that this morning. I want us to begin with a definition, a definition of expository preaching. My definition is drawn very simply from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where in the pastoral epistles, Paul challenges Timothy with this. He says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. You'll notice in that verse, he challenges Timothy that when it comes to his ministry of the Word, he's to do three things. He's to read it, he's to teach it or explain it, and he is to exhort. That is, he is to apply the truth that's taught. So let me give you a definition then. An expository sermon is one in which the preacher reads the text, explains the text in its context, and applies the text to the life of the hearers. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.2. He contrasts adulterating the Word of God with making a manifestation of the truth. The Greek word manifestation is a word which means a display or an exposition. That's what an expository message does. It makes a display of, an exposition of, a manifestation of the truth. Expository preaching is almost always also systematic, consecutive, or sequential. I'll use those words interchangeably this morning, systematic, consecutive, or sequential. By that I mean it moves verse by verse through a book of the Bible. But why is it that we should be committed to expository preaching? Is there biblical warrant for ordinarily preaching through books of the Bible? So let's move on then, having seen a definition, to the arguments for expository preaching. <clears throat> the arguments. There are several categories of supporting arguments. Let me begin with the, the sort of weakest arguments, but they're still, they're still true, and that is the practical arguments. And this is where most people go and stay, as if these were the only arguments for expository preaching. But let me just mention them. The practical, there are practical benefits to preaching verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through the text of Scripture. First of all, it ensures a completely Bible-centered ministry. If I do it right, you're not hearing a lot of Tom Pennington. You're hearing the Scripture and you're seeing it explained. Secondly, it allows those who listen to grasp the logical development of the Word of God as the Spirit inspired it. Thirdly, it addresses ultimately all of the major themes of Scripture. If you're preaching through the Bible, you're going to come to all the themes that are there. Number four, it provides a balance of emphasis. You know, we're all given to hobby horses. And the beauty of verse-by-verse exposition is that we end up dealing with biblical themes with the same frequency and with the same emphasis that God the Holy Spirit has. Number five, It forces us to deal with all Scripture, including difficult passages. I'll just be honest with you. If it weren't for the commitment to verse-by-verse exposition, there are passages I would never preach. 
I hate preaching on giving, not because the Scripture doesn't teach it, but because of how it's abused in our culture. But I don't get that luxury. When I come to it in the text, I have to deal with it. And, of course, there are other difficult issues as well. Number six, it teaches us all how to read and study the Bible systematically, contextually for ourselves. I don't know if you realize it or not, but even if you forget a lot of what I say every Sunday, as we're going verse by verse through the Scripture, you are learning how to approach the Scripture. There is a lesson in the method as well as in the message. Number seven, it best promotes our spiritual growth. I would do this if I would preach expositionally if it were just for my own soul because I know I personally benefit most from it. And number eight, and this is just for me, it aids my sermon selection. (laughs) I hate having to choose what I'm going to preach on because everything's important. How do you choose? And the beauty is the Holy Spirit's chosen the next passage for me. So those are some practical arguments. But let me quickly move on to... Just one theological argument. There are a number of them. I don't have time to walk through them, so let me just touch on a theological argument, and that is the nature of inspiration. Consecutive exposition flows naturally from the biblical doctrine of inspiration. God chose to give us His Word in cohesive, consecutive units of thought that we refer to as books. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is an amazing passage about the Scripture. He begins, beginning in verse 6, dealing with revelation that God has revealed His Word to us. Verse 10, for to us God has revealed these things through the Spirit. But you get to verse 12, and he comes from revelation to inspiration. Look at verse 12 with me. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now, watch verse 13. Which things, the things that God has given to us, Paul says, we as an apostle also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Both the thoughts and the words that the authors of Scripture used were not ultimately theirs, but were the spirits. That's what we call verbal inspiration. It means God has has breathed out the very words of Scripture. You've often heard me say that, that 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is, is the product of the breath of God. It is God-breathed. The words of Scripture are as much the product of the breath of God as my words right now are the product of my breath. That's the point. And so, if these are the thoughts of God expressed in the very words of God, presented in the exact form and order in each book that the Spirit of God inspired, then what can we do to improve on that? Inspiration argues strongly that our common approach to the Scripture be consecutive expository preaching. Now, don't misunderstand. Obviously, that doesn't mean that pastors should never preach a topical sermon. There are examples in Scripture of that. This series, this sermon is an example of that. But understand this, the church best reflects divine revelation and inspiration 
when the consistent pattern of preaching follows the flow of the divinely inspired text. That's the theological argument. Let's move on to the historical argument. A brief survey of church history reveals that the church's consistent commitment has been to consecutive expository preaching. In the mid-2nd century A.D., we learn about the earliest Christian services. Justin Martyr provides the first account outside of Scripture of a Christian church service. Listen to what he writes. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, that's the New Testament, or the writings of the prophets, that's the Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president, that is the person presiding, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Did you see the picture of 1 Timothy 4.13 here? They read the text, explained the text, and applied the text. That's the earliest non-biblical record of a Christian worship service. Now, this pattern continued. Sadly, let's acknowledge that many of the early church fathers tended to stray from this pattern, but there were consistent bright lights. Augustine's sermons, for example, were often exceptions. As one author describes it, for him, a sermon was first of all an exposition of Scripture. In the, in the same period of time, John Chrysostom was an exceptional example of a faithful expositor of Scripture. Hughes Oliphant Old who wrote a massive magisterial seven-volume set on the, on the preaching, reading and preaching of God's Word in the church, writes this, by far the largest number of John Chrysostom's sermons were his expository sermons. On occasion, his series would be interrupted when he decided it was necessary to preach on some other subject. In principle, however, he preached the Lectio Continua, beginning each sermon where he had left off the sermon before, end quote. The Reformers also argued for and displayed by example the consistent practice of sequential expository preaching. John Calvin, for example, systematically preached through books of the Bible. Whether the biblical book was long or short, he was determined to preach every verse. So, here's just a sampling. He preached 89 sermons on Acts, 174 sermons on Ezekiel, 159 sermons on Job, 200 sermons on Deuteronomy, 353 sermons on Isaiah, 123 sermons on Genesis, 109 sermons on 1 Samuel, and 87 sermons on 2 Samuel. What about other reformers? Luther preached expositionally. Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, decided that he was no longer going to preach on the passages that had been prescribed for him. Instead, he announced to his congregation that he was going to preach through the entire gospel of Matthew with his Greek text on the pulpit in front of him. The Puritans followed the same practice. J.I. Packer, in his book on the Puritans' quest for godliness, writes this, 
The Puritans were devotees of continuous exposition and have left behind the magnificent sets of commentary sermons on complete chapters and books of the Bible. Clearly then, beloved, understand that there is historical precedent for consecutive expository preaching. The men on whose shoulders we stand believed and practiced this method. At the same time, let me acknowledge to you that Historical consensus alone is not indisputable evidence, but the fact that so many of them believed consecutive exposition best honors God's Word, best equips God's people, is an argument that we simply cannot ignore. But let's move on to the key, and that is the biblical arguments. The biblical arguments. Here was Stanley's most serious charge against consecutive sequential exposition in that interview. Quote, no one in Scripture modeled that. There's not one example, end quote. The most important question for us when it comes to any issue, including how I and the other elders of this church handle the Word of God, is does the Bible itself include clear examples of expository preaching, and does the Bible demand this of its teachers? We must be prepared to understand what the Scripture teaches and to defend this from the Scripture. So let's do that together. Let me give you the the biblical arguments. Number one, the ministry of Moses. The ministry of Moses. The first clear example of sequential exposition in Scripture comes from the ministry of Moses himself. The foundation was laid back in Exodus 24. Turn there with me. Exodus 24. And look at verse 3. You remember Moses had been with God on Mount Sinai. Verse 3 says, Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the ordinances, and all the people listened with one voice and said, all the words which Yahweh has spoken we will do. Now, in verse 4, you'll notice he writes all the words of the Lord down. Now look at verse 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, folks, it is impossible to overestimate the importance of verse 7. Think about this. From the first time that God revealed himself in written form, the consecutive reading of his word became an essential part of the worship of God's people. Moses laid a foundation by reading God's word to the people at Sinai. But Moses also established a clear pattern of consecutive exposition 40 years later on the plains of Moab. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verse 1 says, these are the words which Moses spoke. And then verse 5 explains the contents of this book of Deuteronomy. Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. 
So Moses not only set out to read the law, which he had done from the very beginning, to read it through as it had been written down under the inspiration of the Spirit, but to explain it. The sermons in Deuteronomy then are Moses-inspired sermons on God's law. So understand this then, Moses was God's instrument not only to initiate written revelation, but also to serve as the pattern for all future biblical preaching. He laid the standard. Read the text consecutively and then preach on the text, explain the text. That brings us to argument number two, the Old Testament corporate worship. The Old Testament corporate worship. The consistent practice of Old Testament corporate worship demonstrates this very same approach that had begun with Moses. You see, Christian worship, our worship, finds its roots in the rich soil of the worship of Israel, worship that centered in the reading and preaching of God's Word. Now, typically, when you and I think about the tabernacle and later the temple, our minds go to what? The sacrificial system. But God also demanded that His Word be taught at both the tabernacle and the temple. He assigned this responsibility to the descendants of Levi. Listen to Deuteronomy 33.10. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. A crucial part of the Levite's job description included teaching the people the Word of God. That's why, in part, God demanded that the Levites not live just in, ultimately in Jerusalem where the temple was, but across the land of Israel. They were to live across the nation so they could teach the people the Word of God on the weekly Sabbaths in their own communities. This was their duty. Now, we learn the importance of this priestly duty in Chronicles. Because in Chronicles, the writer blames the decline of the worship of Yahweh on the priest's failure to, to teach the people God's Word. Wow, this is a sermon series for today. Why is American Christianity declining so rapidly? It's right out of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 15.3, for many days Israel was without the true God. Why? And without a teaching priest and without the law. God's Word wasn't taught, and therefore the worship of the true God declined. Jehoshaphat, the good king, instituted reforms to address this issue. And in 2 Chronicles 17, verses 7 to 9, we read this. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials to teach in the cities of Judah, and with them the Levites, and with them the priests. They taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, and they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Jehoshaphat was forced to institute this reform because it hadn't been done as God had commanded it back in Deuteronomy 33. And as a result, God's people did not know His Word. So as part of his reforms, he sent some of his own officials, some Levites, and among the Levites, a special group of Levites, the priests. The priests were not only descendants of Levi, but they were also descendants specifically of Aaron, Moses' brother. They served in the sacrificial system, but they were also responsible, the priests were, to teach the people the law of God. Listen to Leviticus 10, 11. They were to teach the sons of Israel 
all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Now, some of the Levites were also scribes. That is, they were responsible to archive and copy the law. The most famous of the scribes was Ezra, whose ministry provides a model for the use of the Word of God in worship. The record of Ezra's ministry and his reform is in Nehemiah chapter 8. Turn there with me. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. Verse 3, he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning till midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and there next to him were, the, were these others who were responsible. Ezra, verse 5, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. What's interesting is several common practices today trace to this day in Nehemiah 8. Ezra stood on a raised platform at a wooden podium So not only so all the people could see, but there was a picture that he was standing between God and them as God's instrument to teach them God's Word. Our platform and our pulpit trace back to that day. And although you don't stand for my entire sermon, for which you can give God thanks, (laughs) throughout church history, Christians have stood as we do for the reading of God's Word out of a sign of respect. That all goes back to Ezra goes back to 500 years before our Lord. But look at verse 6. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh the great God, and all the people answered amen and amen while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, these Levites, verse 7, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book of the law, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so they understood the reading. So what did they do here? They read and they translated. That could mean they translated the Scripture from Hebrew to Aramaic because most of the people no longer spoke Hebrew. More likely, they explained the meaning of the reading. But regardless, they did that. We know they explained the Word because that's what God had called them to do. And verse 7 clearly states that they explained what was read. So what's happening here? Ezra and the Levites reestablish the pattern. In their reform, they reestablish the pattern for the corporate worship of God's people. They read the text and they explained the text. They read the text and they explained the text. This was the Old Testament pattern. A third biblical argument is Jewish synagogue worship. Worship in the synagogue followed the same pattern. In the first century, the Sabbath service centered on reading and explaining the Scripture. James describes this practice in Jewish synagogues at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15.21. 
This is what James says. Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Did you hear that? Moses is read and preached, read and preached, read and preached. That was the pattern. Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher, describes the typical weekly synagogue service at the time of Christ. Quote, they come to the holy places called synagogues according to their age and order. The young men sit under the elders at their feet and with a decent composure attend to the hearing. When one taking the book reads and another one of the most skillful explains what is not known. They read and explain. They read and explain. So in the synagogue during the time of Christ, the most skillful teachers read the Scripture and then another or the same one explained that portion of Scripture. <clears throat> the typical synagogue service then in the first century it included readings from both the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament. So there was a reading from Moses, the first five books. There was a reading from somewhere in the rest of the Old Testament, every Sabbath. And the sermon was connected to those readings. And the reading was, like all the way back to Moses, intentionally consecutive. Week after week, the teacher read the next portion in the law and the next section in the prophets and explained the reading. Undoubtedly, there were times when the leaders of the synagogue may have given the, a teacher liberty to choose a passage to be read, but ordinarily, first century synagogues followed a systematic consecutive reading of Scripture from the law and then from the prophets, and then a sermon explained that day's reading. Normal synagogue sermons, then, were consecutive expositions of Scripture. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean they were always good expositions. Jesus often corrected the content of their sermons, but he never took issue or disparaged their method of consecutive exposition. The teacher read the next passage beyond where they ended the previous week and explained it. That was the pattern of synagogue worship. And that is crucial to understand to get the next argument. And the next biblical argument is this, our Lord's teaching ministry, our Lord's own teaching ministry. Again, Hughes Oliphant Old writes, Jesus was preeminently a preacher of the Word. His three-year ministry was above all a preaching ministry. A crucial part of Jesus' preaching ministry, however, Listen carefully, a crucial part of Jesus' preaching ministry was in synagogues on the Sabbath. Matthew 4, 23 records Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus himself said in John 18, 20 to Pilate, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. But you can see this most clearly in Luke's gospel. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke drives this home. Luke chapter 4, and look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit 
and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Now, verse 15 explains the focus of his ministry in Galilee. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all, all around Galilee. So the focus of his ministry, this new ministry in Galilee, was preaching in the synagogues all over Galilee. Now the next verse, verse 16, describes his return to his hometown. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and notice this, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. He took the book of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him, opened the book, and found the place where it is written. Now, you'll notice verse 20 concludes after the reading, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the congregation were fixed on him, and he began to say to them. Now, the word began means Luke didn't record Jesus' entire sermon, but what I want you to get is in his hometown synagogue, Jesus did exactly what was done in the synagogue. He read the text and he explained it. Jesus was an expository preacher. After the people of Nazareth rejected him, Jesus continued teaching and preaching in the synagogues in Galilee. Look down at verse 31. He came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. This was his regular practice. Verse 44, he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Notice there it says of Judea. This was the focus of Jesus' ministry, not only in Galilee, but also in Judea. That is either a reference to the the region around Jerusalem, or it might be a reference to the entire land of Israel. But either way, this is what Jesus did. Every Sabbath, Jesus never failed to worship on the Sabbath, and every Sabbath he read the text and he explained the text. Verse 6 of chapter 6 adds this, on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Luke 13.10 again mentions he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Listen, folks, examine the ministry of Jesus and you will find a pattern. He often taught during the week. Those are some of his most famous sermons. There are countless examples of his teaching from from boats in the Sea of Galilee, from hillsides, the temple grounds in Jerusalem, and many other venues during the week. But the primary focus of Jesus' teaching ministry, week in and week out, was preaching in the synagogues. And there, Jesus participated in the normal routine of synagogue worship, the consecutive reading and exposition of the Word of God. Jesus was a sequential expositor. So don't you believe those who try to convince you that there's no example of this in the Bible? This didn't happen. We're just making this up. No, this was Jesus' primary approach to the teaching of God's Word. Let's move on to a fifth biblical argument, the New Testament church. The New Testament church. Here we discover yet another argument for exposition that is ordinarily sequential or consecutive. From the beginning, the church's leaders were devoted to teaching God's Word, and God's people 
were equally devoted to the apostles' teaching, according to Acts 2.42. You remember in Acts 6, the apostles faced at the church in Jerusalem a surprising distraction from their teaching. What was it? It was the ministry of caring for widows, an important ministry, but one that threatened to distract them from praying and teaching God's Word. But they determined to focus their greatest priorities in this way. Acts 6, 3, and 4, brethren, select from among you seven men whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That was the priority of the apostles as they ministered to the church in Jerusalem. But that wasn't merely the apostles' priority. That became the priority of the local church elders, the primary duty of New Testament elders. This is clear even in what distinguishes elders from deacons and others. It is an ability to teach God's Word, 1 Timothy 3.2. They must be able to teach. Paul describes the elders that the church should support financially when he writes to Timothy, talking about the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, you need to support financially, quote, those who labor at teaching and preaching, end quote, because of the priority that it has in the life of the church. The priority of of the ministry of the Word is is also clear not only in the New Testament examples, but in its commands. Paul insists that both the Old Testament and the growing body of New Testament-inspired documents were to be read and explained in the corporate worship of the church. I started with 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, where he says, "'Until I come.'" Give your wholehearted attention to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching, that is to explaining it, and to exhortation, that is to applying it. And he goes on to say, be completely devoted to this. Be in these things so that your progress will be evident to all. He says, Timothy, as a shepherd, you have one chief duty, and that is to feed the sheep. Read the text explain the text, apply the text. That was the job, the job description of a New Testament elder. In 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Under the authority of Christ himself, 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul demanded that New Testament elders read and preach the Scripture. Not only the Old Testament, but Paul's letters were to be read as well, showing that the New Testament is to be treated in the same way. In 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul writes, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The clear implication is that the reading was to drive the explanation. And ordinarily, the reading would have been consecutive. Again, the clear implication is that Paul's letters were to be read in their entirety as he had written them, and the elder who read 1 Thessalonians to the congregation there was to read the letter as Paul wrote it, and he was to explain whatever needed to be explained to make it clear, just as he was to do with reading the Old Testament Scripture. So, by apostolic command, then, we are to read and explain the New Testament books 
and the Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament. So let me summarize it this way. The Word has always been central in the worship of God. It has always been the key element of worship. That's why there isn't an altar here at the center of the pulpit in the front of this church, but a pulpit that pictures the reality that this has been the central role, all the way back to Moses and especially to Ezra in Nehemiah 8. The ministry of the Word has commonly been the systematic consecutive reading and then explaining of God's Word. That's exactly what we do here week after week, month after month, year after year. Why? Because we like to do it? No, because that is the biblical pattern and mandate for the leaders of the church. Always has been and always will be. So let's move then to the implications of all of this. What are the implications of this determination that you need to have, that I need to have, that as a church we need to have to recover the legacy of expository preaching? Let me give you several. Number one, understand this, that any church that is not wholeheartedly committed to expository preaching, and I say this with grace, but it's true from what we've just seen, has lost through carelessness of its leaders in the past or abandoned intentionally out of the the greatest amount of pride the legacy of the Christian church. This is what has been done. A failure to do it is either carelessness or pride. This is what God has demanded of His church. Number two, personally, personally, you need to embrace the biblical priority of and develop a personal appetite for expository preaching. Look, I get it. We live in a soundbite world. We live in a TikTok world or an Instagram world where everything is here and done, here and done. Tom, can you hurry it up? I've got other things to do. You need to develop an appetite for what God has demanded happen in His church. Listen, if you can sit If you can sit and watch a baseball game for three hours, if you can sit and watch a movie for two hours, if you can sit and and binge on Netflix for hour upon hour, you can listen to the Word of God for a few minutes. Develop an appetite for expository preaching because this isn't something I decided I should do. This is what the church has always done because it's what God commanded be done and their example after example in the Scripture and throughout church history. And why should you do that? Because this book that you hold in your hand, that book contains everything you need for life and godliness. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he said to Timothy, The Scripture, listen to this, the Scripture, what's in in between the covers of this book is able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Listen, you want to be forgiven of your sins? You want to know God, your Creator? The answer to that is not found out there somewhere. It's found in the covers of this book. It's found between the covers of that book you hold in your hand. This is God's wisdom that will point you to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And if you've already come to know that salvation, Paul goes on to say in that very same passage that the Scripture is able to equip you for every good work. That's why we, that's why we are so careful with it. Because if you're in Christ, you're not going to find help in self-help. You're not going to find help on the internet unless it comes from explaining this book. This is what God has given you for life and godliness. And His Spirit to help you understand it. Teachers in the church to help you further understand it. This is God's way. So embrace that. Number three, choose only churches that take God's Word seriously. And that is demonstrated by a pattern of sequential expository preaching. Listen, if you, if you are visiting and decide this church isn't for you, look, I understand that. But don't you dare go to a church where God's Word isn't taken seriously. Because this is what God has demanded of His church. And some guy who gets up and gives a 20-minute chat with all of his jokes and stories and doesn't read, explain, doesn't read the text, explain the text, and apply the text is a travesty on the ministry, and he is unfaithful to Jesus Christ as Lord because this is what's been required. Don't choose a church that doesn't take God's Word seriously. Number four, value the treasure of God's Word. Read it yourself, study it, meditate on it, obey it, and teach it to those under your influence. If, if this is the priority when we come together for worship, then it should be the priority when you worship individually. Worship is not about a feeling. Feelings follow truth. It's about the truth. And number five, be a good expository listener. If I'm commanded to be an expository preacher, you need to be a good expository listener. How do you do that? Well, it starts with bringing your Bible with you where you can track with me and hold me faithful. You ought to be able to leave here going, yep, I see that. I see that's exactly what that says. That makes sense. If it's something esoteric and you look at it and go, I have no idea where Tom got that, that's a problem. You need to be tracking with me. I encourage you to consider taking notes. You don't have to take notes. That's not required biblically, but consider it to aid as a, as a memory tool, to aid in focused listening. Review the passage that we, that we deal with during the week. Go back, read it, think about what you learn, seek to apply it. Take your role in this process seriously. This is for your soul. It is, not, it is for my soul, but it is not solely for my soul. It's for all of us. Beloved, let's insist on the legacy of expository preaching because this is what the scriptures teach. This is what faithful men have always done and that's why we do it here. So it's not new. This is not new. This is old and it's because God has commanded it. Let's learn to treasure it.